Welcome to another episode of the Dominionist Collection. As you know, every week we normally revisit the Pop Princess's classic albums to celebrate some of Carly's most marvellous musical moments. But for this very special episode, we have something a little more exciting in store for you all. This week we are joined by a man who's become an integral part of Carly's team. He is Steve Anderson, the brother in rhythm who turned Carly from a fresh-faced pop princess into a bona fide dance floor diva, starting with the iconic track, Confide in Me. Since then, he's continued to produce not only smash hit records for the pop superstar, but also helped to musically direct her amazing live shows. Steve, welcome to the Diminutive Collection. Thank you very much for asking me. It's lovely to be here. We are so excited to have you. Thank you so much. But before we get started, if you can just tell us where you grew up and what was the very first album you ever bought? Oh, what an excellent question. I grew up in a, a place called Southend-on-Sea in Essex. <laughs> and... Um, and it's sort of kind of by the seaside, I suppose, to a point. Um, and the first album I bought, if it's kind of, when we were growing up, it was a bit more like the first album you buy normally is the thing that you get in like a, a kind of like a, what it used to be a jumble sale or something, so like a kind of, you know, not much money. So, you know, back then it was finding things in, uh, in various kind of charity shops. Um, but I think, one of the first albums I bought was probably The Visitors by ABBA, um, which, was, which sounds like a cool one. I'm sure there's another one that's less cool, but that's the one that comes to mind. That's amazing. Like Southend as well, one of the biggest peers in the world, I think, isn't it? It's it is. The, the, it, absolutely. That's with, it still holds that thing. It's been burnt down a couple of times, but I still think it is the biggest. I don't live there now, but, um, but I still visit quite often, and uh, that's where I grew up, yes. And so how did you get into music in the first place as a young kid from Essex and what got you into music? The, uh, the abbreviated story is because it, it's, it's, it's too, goes on too long. I, I've known how to, or I've been able to play piano and keyboards by ear from a very young age. My parents were, um, were very kind of helpful and, uh, and, and positive at sort of pushing me to kind of play keyboards and I could hear, you know, as, as a very young kid, annoying kid, I would, you know, have a little keyboard and I'd hear something on the radio and then I'd just go and sort of play it. And I just, cause I learned how to play piano by listening to the records and to the stuff my dad played and, you know, lots of, a lot of soul stuff, a lot of Stevie Wonder, Aretha Franklin, that kind of stuff. But then on the other side, my mum loved um, shows. So I was getting the kind of soul in, uh, thing from my dad and the kind of show thing from my mum. Um, and then did a bit of DJing, um, DJing in a lot of local clubs when I was really, really young and uh, sort of 14, 15. Met a guy that we formed a little remix DJ team, sent off a demo to a company called Disco Mix Club, which is, which is DMC now. They liked it. Eventually, I pestered them and they, they, were able, they gave me a job as like a T-boy in the studio and... Uh, that meant that I was in this studio where all these incredible, you know, early, like 89, 90, all these incredible multi-tracks were coming through the studio because they were a remix um, studio. So you'd have all these multi-tracks from people like Nile Rogers and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and all these amazing people. Um, and at night, once everyone went home, I would stay behind and listen to these multi-tracks or stems as you guys would know them and um, have a listen and found out how records were made. And that's kind of how I taught myself. What was the what was the birth of the kind of remix songs? Did that come from the Summer of Love, or was that more from the Chicago era where you? <clears> no, I mean way way before that. I mean remixing. I mean in the very very beginning, 
you know, there were people like Larry Levan at the Paradise Garage, you know, late 70s. I mean, the remix culture came from very much from disco and all mm. these amazing people like Tom Moulton and Donna Summer Records. Um, and then the post-production stuff, you know, my absolute, I mean, my absolute hero and, you know, the, the person I've learned so much from over the years, who's sadly no longer with us, is a guy from da called David Cole, who was Clavillas and Cole, CNC Music Factory, there, and another guy called Shep Pettibone who did all mm. of the Madonna records and they were remixing way, way earlier and, and reworking stuff. And uh, I've always found that remixing is a bit like uh, the new arranging. You know, in the old days, you'd have all these arrangers like, you know, who would arrange for Frank Sinatra and they'd take a song and they'd reinvent it in another way. And I always felt remixing was the same thing where you'd take a track and then you kind of rework it as another version. So it was, it's something I've always weirdly been able to have is if I hear a song, I can in my brain turn it into another version. And that's proved quite helpful. Obviously you were in Brothers and Rhythm in the 80s, 90s? Uh, 90s, yeah, 91, yeah. yeah. So obviously before that, Kylie had kind of uh, burst onto the scene and you kind of had your eye on her that you were kind of a fan of her. When she kind of made her first mark on you, what was it that kind of uh, made you think, ah, oh, there's, something, there's something special about this uh, pop superstar? I mean, I was a huge fan of Stock Aitken and Waterman Ooh. in general. I mean, massive, massive fan. Um, and, you know, they've had some incredible, especially at the time, they had some incredibly unfair flack considering what they were able to do. Not every record they made was great, but I mean, you know, the ones that were, were exceptionally good. And I just loved, I think the thing is with when, when Lucky came out, I think it was very much like, oh yeah, we get, I get that, that's the girl from Neighbours and that's cool. But it was when I heard the album and you know, things like I'll Still Be Loving You and those kind of songs and I thought, oh God, there's something so special about this. And then as it went on, you know, all of those tracks that are my favorite, like Things Can Only Get Better and uh, Always Find The Time and all those kind of songs, I just felt that, you know, she just had that most perfect, she was a perfect pop star. She had Ooh. the most perfect pop voice. I didn't know them because I was still very young. I didn't know her work ethic and how they even made those records and how quickly they made those records. Mm. But I just loved the whole kind of package of great songs, great videos, great pop star. So I was a really huge fan beforehand and so much so that in the DMC world, when I was stopped being a T-boy and I started remixing, <laughs> I requested um, the multi-track for Step Back in Time. Ooh. And I did, the first thing I ever did with Kylie was a remix of Step Back in Time for DMC. That's available on YouTube now, isn't it? I think so, yeah. I yeah. think everything's everywhere, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> and, you know, I'm not sure if it was the best thing in the world, but I, 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 and I remember getting the multi-track for it and just immediately just rushing to turn up her lead vocal and <laughs> just being so impressed by, you know, the quality of it, everything about the performance and the pitching and everything, it was just perfect. And I kind of loved it from there. So thankfully, I don't know if anyone heard that or maybe people were aware of Brothers in Rhythm because we were doing stuff with other um, yeah. artists. And uh, yeah, and then they asked us to do Finer Feelings, which is which I adored and didn't yeah. sound like very much else that she'd done. And um, so my partner, David, and I remixed Finer Feelings. And that was the kind of first thing that we really did with her. Which was an amazing version of that song. Because even on the album in its original form, it was a very unusual song for Stock Aitken and Waterman to, or was it Stock yeah. and Waterman at that point? That was lovely, um, it's yeah. a beautiful song. I mean, they, they, they really wrote some incredible songs. Ooh. It wasn't all fluff and uh, 
Finer Feelings is a perfect example of that, I think. We joked about Sockcake and Waterman saying they're like the modern day Beatles for us in our generation because they were, you know, had such great songs and they kind of influenced our generation, so to speak. We grew up in all these amazing songs and when you do break them down and you look at them, like you said, they were incredible songwriters and incredible craftsmen. And I think also when you when you rework them and, you know, as I've been lucky enough to do over the years and, and even down to some songs that people think of fluff, I mean, not Kylie related, but I did a show about three years ago with Denise Van Outen where we redid a new version of You'll Never Stop Me From Loving You by Sonia, reworked as a ballad. And the, yeah. the intricacy of the, the lyric and the chord changes and everything, mm. it's absolutely beautiful. So, um, yeah, I've always been a fan of those three, always. See, I think I'm going to shed a tear now because it's lovely to hear someone take those songs really seriously. Because b- back when I was 15 years old listening to all these songs, it wasn't cool to like Stock Aiken Waterman, it wasn't cool to like Kylie when, you were, when I was 15, 14, 15. Hmm. But to hear someone now talk, I mean, obviously you're in, you're in that industry, so you, of course you, you have an appreciation, but it's lovely to hear people kind of give these songs the credit they deserve. Because as you say, that, that the ballad version by Denise Van Outen of You'll Never Stop Me Loving You is actually beautiful. And when you hear songs in a different format sometimes, that you can really get to hear how brilliantly crafted they are and how well put together they are. Hence the Abbey Road album for Kylie. Well, yeah, great? I mean, exactly like Never Too Late on Abbey Road. <laughs> Hand on your heart. I mean, that, I just, Never Too Late is one of the, oh my God, what a song. Like, yeah. if it can just do that with a piano and a vocal. Yeah. You know, and not everything they did was great and not yeah. everything everybody does is great. But wow, they, they really did. You know, there's a few years there where they really did hit on something special, I think. Just, just going back to the remixes of, of these songs. So in order for you to do that, you would need the master track layered tracks file. So everything to accomplish what you needed to do for that. Right. So you yeah. would need full participation from the record label. and Yeah. Artists. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would always be with DNC. They, they would they had a remix service. So it was DJ, they, every month they do two albums and there would be exclusive remixes. And it was promotion for the record companies. So they just kept sending all these tapes over. Um, for Finer Feelings, obviously that came directly from PWL um, as, a, as, a re- as a commissioned remix. Um, so did you feel, was there a certain crusher, bearing in mind you had such a, such a, you know, a loyalty to Kylie, when, when you were kind of properly uh, invited to do that? Did you get kind of nervous when you were kind of putting it together or was it, were you able to kind of put it to one side and think, well, this is just a, a commission I, I've been asked to do? Did you feel very nervous doing it? I think we felt very nervous doing it because it was important because it was her and, and both of us were really, really big fans. And, and we didn't want to get it wrong. You know, we didn't want to stuff it up. Um, and also we were aware that we weren't the first, but we were one of a very small um, amount of people that had been allowed to get anywhere near the, the Stock Aitken and Waterman remixes because it was always, you know, the brilliant, you know, Pete Hammond and Tony King and, and Phil Harding and like people that I really respect. So the fact that they let someone else in, we wanted to make it very special, but we just, and also just to kind of make a, a, a different sort of Kylie record. So yeah, it was, we were always very precious. We never, I don't think we ever did anything that we didn't truly believe in. In fact, we would rather turn something down than like just do a job. Mm. Um, it's interesting. We, in, in our previous episodes, we've been kind of saying that the first four Stock Aitken Waterman albums uh, kind of veer very differently in terms of style. They changed their style quite a lot. Waterman had said once that she was the, the best and the worst thing that happened to Stock Aitken Waterman because they focused so much time on creating really good songs for her. When you got to hear Let's Get To It, obviously, which is what Final Feelings was from, what did you make of that album? Because it was completely different to the previous three. 
Yeah, I mean, I liked it. I've, I've got various things on each of the album, the Stocking and Watermelon albums that I love and the ones and things that I'm not as wild about. I think the thing to, that I understand, and I don't know this for sure, but and you would probably know better than me, but I know that those records were, a lot of them were put together very quickly mm. because there was a there was a finite amount of time where it was like especially back then i think it's quite hard for people to understand these days how a how much time how much it took to make a record in a world with not many computers <laughs> but also you know how much the you know you would i was working i've worked recently well on a show with nick kershaw and you know nick's someone that released his first two albums in the same year you know people would want some, they just want it to just content. Wow. So I think as long as people knew they had the four singles, then sometimes some of the other tracks would just, mm. you know, work with, you know, and you're also, they allowed artists to experiment back then. So I think, you know, if, if, if she wanted, if she had an idea of doing something that was a bit like this, they'd go, yeah, yeah, go for it. Because I think we, we kind of previously said that sometimes we felt like Kylie sometimes doesn't linger on a style long enough for us to you know, like each album is kind of like a shift. Like even with it in, in later years, like Kylie 94 was kind of handbaggy house. And then The Possible Princess was kind of very kind of mm. experimental. And then you've got Light Years and then you've got Fever, which is electronic. And then Body Language, that's R&B. You know, there's, it, there's a different style for every album. And yeah, it's just linger on it long enough. Yeah, but she's got to keep moving. It's mm. moving, living. You know what I mean? I just think once you, you can't. You know, and, and, and I always feel that the, the, the one constant on that is, is no matter what's happening around it, it's her in the middle. The voice. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's what I think about. Just, well, she finished the kind of PWL days with What Kind of Fool that was mm -hmm. released on The Greatest Hits. And then obviously for What Kind of Fool, the next thing we heard was the amazing Confide in Me. It was a kind of complete kind of step change with that kind of song to, to where she was going. When you wrote Confide in Me, did you have her in mind? No, I mean, the, the kind of story goes that um, the Deconstruction, Pete Hatfield and Keith Blackhurst, who ran Deconstruction, who at that time were putting out great dance records by Black Box and, and stuff like that, they were friends of ours. They, you know, hung out at the Hacienda when we were there. You know, we came very much from that dance background. So, you know, my partner Dave Seaman was DJing at the Hacienda and various other clubs. So we knew them and literally you know the it sounds untrue but it is true the story goes that you know when she'd been signed to deconstruction my partner dave seaman called keith blackhurst and said we absolutely love her is there any chance that we could do something and he said yeah i'll have a have her down in your studio by next week <laughs> um, and then we just got really scared and thought <laughs> you know shit we better have something if this girl we've never met this girl before <laughs> and we're huge fans and we thought if she turns up and like we've got to have something so we went in back then and i think we put down some some kind of dance thing i don't know what it was i don't think it ever turned into anything and then uh, david was just scribbling stuff down and i was playing around with this kind of riff and this beat and i looked over and david had this thing scribbled down and about the there's, it's actually on the internet somewhere. There's like a, a piece of paper and I think on a breakout pad, which was like a record label back then. And about halfway down, it just says, confide in me. And I said, well, that sounds cool. And then we just did it and went, well, we're gonna, we've got something to play her, but she's gonna hate it because it's <laughs> nothing like anything she's ever done before. So the truth is we didn't, we only did that because we knew she was coming. 
<laughs> and we thought we better have something up our sleeve. Amazing. So we didn't have, it wasn't something that existed. In fact, in my entire career, I don't think I've really ever done anything for anyone that has existed. I'm very bespoke. So if something's happening, I go, ah, I better do something. We thank you for it though, because this is a killer track and a killer tune. When, when you were producing it, obviously, did you feel the magic? That you, did you know that this was going to be a killer song? This, is, this was going to kind of reinvigorate her career? We absolutely loved it, but you would, we, had, we had no clue that it was going to be a single, let alone the first <laughs> single. Because you have to imagine, I mean, I've heard you two talk about it. The reaction that you had when you first heard it, you know, imagine that reaction when, you know, yeah. what record label said to us, the first thing was confiding me after going from what kind of fall? And we just suddenly thought, oh God, what if, well, yeah, we love it, but what if everyone else doesn't? And then it's going to be awful and we will have broken her. It's like, ah, what are we going to do? So, Pressure, um, which just must have been immense. Yeah. And the thing is, if you talk to people like me, um, you will find that we don't really, um, we don't know about success. We just do stuff mm. and we like it and we hope that it's <laughs> going to work. Mm. Um, so yeah, it felt magical and brilliant. And a lot of the vocal is the demo vocal and there's some great stuff in there, but you, we weren't, we couldn't have expected or we didn't anticipate what would have happened with it at all, but couldn't be more overjoyed, obviously. So with the Carly 94 album, you did five tracks on that, right? Confide in Me, Love uh, Is Waiting. Went, five that went on, yeah. Went on, yeah. Uh, could we talk about Where Is The Feeling and yeah. the multiple different versions that mm -hmm. are out there? Which is, which is your favourite? That's actually quite a, a, an interesting one. I mean, I do have a lot of love for the album version because it was, you know, it was my, our love letter to David Morales and Frankie Knuckles. It was, mm. you know, who are two remixes, veteran remixes, um, uh, and, and we, we, we adore them. But at the time, there was a, a Brothers in Rhythm, for, for people that don't know, we, we, had a, <laughs> we had a sort of tendency to kind of go a little over the top in our remixes. And rather than just do a remix, we would reproduce the thing with new vocals and spend <laughs> weeks and weeks and weeks. So it'd be like an opus. So the Confide in Me Big Brothers mix, which, which, which you heard mm. at four o'clock in the morning, <laughs> you know, that was, it was in the days of record companies and budgets. And we were four yeah. weeks at Sam West, which is Trevor Horn's studio, reworking it and making different versions. And, you know, with Confide in Me, the Big Brothers mix, we wrote an entirely different song that ended it, which was like a disco song. Um, Where's the feeling? We knew that the remix was from a club point of view, it was probably too pop. So we came across this idea of doing a spoken version of it. Mm. I mean, I love, I have to, probably if I haven't pushed, I would say that the full soundtrack, whatever the dolphin soundtrack thing mm. I love because it just goes through so mm. many stages. Um, the third one you're talking about, the thing called a Bish Bosh mix. Yes. It was called that because literally, it was like, oh God, we need something for TV and Radio 2 are never going to play the Dolphin one. <laughs> so it was like, quick, bish, bosh, done. Yeah. I remember so seeing her, there's something in all three of them. Yeah, I remember seeing her perform that version on the Steve Wright show. And I remember yeah. thinking, oh my God, this is a brilliant version because it, it yeah. kind, of kind of opens with it a little bit like the Supreme. Uh, da -da -da, and the, yeah. The oh, yeah. Brilliant. Can. I loved it. Totally. Just, just going yeah, back to that was... song at the end of Confiding Me because I... I mentioned it in the, in the podcast about that, that end part of the Big Brother mix 
Can you keep a secret? I can keep a secret, yeah, yeah. I mean, I always wanted that to be a song in its own right because I just thought it was a brilliant song. (laughs) Was it ever considered like maybe turning it into a song for the album or anything? No, no, we were just in, we were remixing and we just got to, there's about, there's there's about five sections on the Confide in Me Big Brothers mix. (laughs) And when it got to the fifth one, it was just, we wanted it to be like a whole journey in a club. And at the end of it, you'd end off with an absolute kind of, you know, party anthem. Yeah. Um, Again, you know, influence from David Cole all over that. I mean, there's a Lebanese and Cole remix of Black and White by Michael Jackson, which is my favourite remix of all time by anybody ever. And we were just like, we want to get a bit of that in there and almost a bit of, because again, we were very conscious of the fact that Confiding Me was so different. And it was the first thing anyone was going to hear. We thought, well, let's show everybody that we also love that Kylie as well. So it went from dark to light. Um, so, but in truth, we just were having the time of our life and didn't Sounds really think like about that. it. <laughs> in, in hindsight now, looking back at the album as a whole piece of work, would, would you want to do anything different to it? Was there any kind of things that you'd like to change? No, I really wish, I really wish Love Is Waiting had made it because Love Is Waiting is one of my favourite, favourite things we've ever done. And I felt... But controversially, I felt that that could have gone where the M People song went. But I knew that the M, I know obviously you didn't get bigger than M People at that time, but I felt that Love Is Waiting, which was released on the Hits Plus, that mm, was yes. recorded for that album. Uh, I'd have loved that to be on there. But other than that, no, I mean, I think it was, there was some great stuff I love. Oh, you know, it's not only our stuff, you know. Um, obviously, putting yourself in my place is great. And, you know, there's some amazing stuff on that record. It's, it, when we were revisiting, we, we, in one of our discussions, we were kind of saying that, well, I was kind of saying that at the time, I loved Confiding Me so much that when I got the album and listened to it, I was kind of disappointed because nothing else sounded like it. And I was mm. kind of hoping that there would be this kind of like maybe a theme of majestic sound all the way through. Mm. And, and so I, I didn't really listen to the album until just recently. And then listening back, it's actually a really, really good album. Um, at the time, because that song was so big and so ridiculous, ridiculous and overblown mm. with orchestra and the strings and stuff. It was such a, a great teaser for the album. Did, uh, had she considered doing anything else that was a, along a similar vein? Because I know you've done something with, uh, you did years later, Mark Healy, that great song, Love is a Drug, which is kind of the same oh, yeah, kind of ilk, thanks, which yeah. I love. I love that song. Um, I think we, I think the thing with Confiding Me is it, it, it just is such a kind of thing on its own. And it, it you know, we, I, we tried to kind of have a bit of a theme. I think you know, automatic love lives in that world a Ooh. bit, in that it's breaks and it's strings and yeah. um, one of the best vocals I've ever heard her do in my entire life on automatic love. I mean, it's just mind blowing what that she did on that. And obviously Dangerous Game had a bit of that orchestral stuff in there as well. But no, I don't think so. I think it was it was a brilliantly A&R'd album by, um, by, by Deconstruction. Um, and they got the club thing on there and they got our thing and they got the kind of R&B thing. So, you know, and it didn't have to have 20 tracks on it. It was just a really perfect record, I think. So moving forward now to one of the most, I mean, divisive and albums <laughs> of her career, uh, it would be An Impossible Princess. As an Australian, I, I love this album. Yeah. Uh, were you kind of disappointed with the whole reaction with it? Because it, it kind of is an album that had a few missteps and t- timing wasn't on its side with obviously the death of Princess Diana and the delay with that with it, between Europe and Australian markets and... The, the non-release of Cowboy Style in Europe, which I think was a massive mistake because that song is incredible. How, how did the reaction affect you guys? 
Um, I think we were we were really privileged at that time to see the what I feel the the, the songwriter in Kylie was 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 really coming out, especially in her lyrics. Mm. Um, and you know, obviously, I know that that album is you know is for some people, isn't for other people, and it's not maybe what people would have wanted from her. But I I genuinely believe it was a very important record to make at the time. Um, and even if for nothing else, for what to come back from after it, I think yeah, it was exactly. an, an itch that was that, that was needed to scratch, basically. And I think I think it's important to look at where what artists are going through at that time you know and she was in the same way as you know what she was going through you know when she made the better the w no video or something like that i think it was just how what how far can we push this and deconstruction were, were full-on giving total artistic control and we weren't making an album we, we didn't for one second think let's make a pop record or let's make a record with hits on it um, we just were writing and doing stuff and making tracks and making songs and we spent a lot of time down at Real World and experimenting with things and you know remembering at the time it was the time of Massive Attack and Tricky and Porter's yeah. Head and um, and just some of the you know some of the lyrics and some of the things that were she was coming out with I mean I would defy any um, what, for want of a better word, kind of pop star to come up with some of those things. Um, so I don't think, when we, again, when we delivered it, and when we delivered it, it, it was a 10-track album. This is before the Manics got involved. Mm. So when we delivered it, we thought, well, that's a really lovely piece of work. But I didn't think it's going to sell gazillions. But we were very proud of it. Um, and but we didn't really know how what they were going to do or what the single was going to be or what the market was going to be um and obviously then they they obviously realized that there wasn't they were going to struggle with radio so they got james on board to write a couple of songs which were fantastic and uh yeah i think it did i think it did i think it did what it needed to do yeah Um, i was more i was really enthused for me it was helpful when i came to australia because I saw how much they embraced it when we yeah. came for Intimate and Live. I realized that I think with anything, there's always going to be someone somewhere that's going to love it, even if everyone else hates yeah, someone. And I think Australia embraced it. And if we hadn't done that, we hadn't done Intimate Live, we, hadn't done, we wouldn't have done Dancing Queen. Everything has its reason. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd like to thank you for like Dreams <laughs> with an amazing standout track on the album. Um, and also Cowboy Style, as I mentioned, is also yeah. two of my personal kind of favourites there. Well, I think Dreams, I mean, I think Dreams, you know, even even you liked, and I know that you're not, Ooh. you know, not a fan <laughs> of the record, but I think Dreams is, um, Dreams was one of the first things we wrote, um, and it was it was inspired by some poetry. Um, I love that song. I really, really love that song. So, the, you know, for every too far, there's a Dreams, do you know what I mean? It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know. Uh, that's true. This is, I, I didn't know that the, the, that the Manic Street Preacher songs came later because I, I, I always wondered why it, they, they always seem to clash against the rest of the, the, the music because the rest of the music was kind of a little bit more dancey. But, I mean, yeah. I love the Manic Street Preacher songs. I think that I, I was so disappointed when the single didn't do as well as I thought it should have. I thought it was a really good summer. It's still a great summer song if you listen to it. But as we were saying last time, a few weeks ago, uh, you know, it kind of came at a time when we were mourning the death of someone. So this bright, sunny, sunshine song probably didn't. Did he fit very well? 
No, exactly. And I think it's, um, yeah, I, I, I think it was, it was a moment in time. And some people will, you know, as you say, critics will now look back and say it's one of the lost gems of the 90s. Mm. And then other people will say, oh, you know, it's not quite. And it's the, it's, I also think it's the Kylie thing, whereas everyone has their version of Kylie. And, you know, some will, will like that one, some will like, the, the, you know, the pop one. So, um, yeah, it was, it was an important record to make. Were you excited, like, with the new direction following Impossible Princess, with the light years direction, the more disco camp, Kylie? Were you excited to get involved with that kind of new direction for her musical? Yeah, I mean, when I, when, we, when I started working on light years, I didn't know it was light years. It was, you know, before she'd signed to Parlophone. So when we were writing things like So Now Goodbye and stuff like that, there was no spinning around. Spinning mm-hmm. around came almost quite near the end. So um, it was just, it, when, we, when I say, when I think, I think we were at Real World and we were doing uh, things like Harmony and Cover Me With Kisses and all those kind of B-sides and Disco Down and Bittersweet and stuff. And um, it, that was before the Parlophone deal was there. So, but I was, yeah, definitely the first, first time I heard Spinning Around, it wasn't the version that came out. It was a, like a demo version um, and it, I liked it, I didn't love it. And then when I heard the single version, I thought, yeah, that's amazing. Going back to your your songwriting process with artists, how how do you, so you go into a room, do you have any thoughts and ideas or is it more of a casual conversation with them? Uh, You might have an idea or a word like confide in me that sparks something in you that would write these songs. How does it work for you? It's, it's, annoyingly um, for you, it's different every single time. Sometimes it can be a conversation. Sometimes it can be, oh, you know, I like to write. It's good to write about something, but but sometimes, you know, with something like you know, with someone like her, it, she could come in and say, "Oh, well, here's a verse, or this is a chorus, or it's a key, it's a thing." Or sometimes it would just be working on a, a kind of a rough idea for a track. So um, it is literally different every it's single time. <laughs> going back to also staging her songs for live tours, um, what's been your favourite tour to work on? Oh, um, if, I, if, uh, if, if I had to make a decision just based on joy, it was anti-tour. That was um, brilliant. God, it was great. Which sounds ridiculous because what everyone wants me to say is, is, is Aphrodite because it was everything it was. Um, but I think the two that mean the most to me are, are, are anti-tour because of the, uh, did you go to anti-tour? Yeah, we went to Hamilton Apollo, yeah. <laughs> so, so much about that was, I've just never felt um, that kind of love in a room. Like everyone sort of said it was like a room full of, it's like a family of strangers. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, and I yeah. really, really loved that. And I loved that we mm. opened it in Australia. And I mean, the other one, the other one I'd pick would be Intimate and Life because it's the first thing. First time I'd ever done that job. I mean, I didn't even know if I could do that job. I was, I'd only sort of worked on the records and stuff and we did a, a, a Mardi Gras thing and, uh, and then William and I were, found ourselves on a plane to Australia and that show, I think, as you know, was, it was only supposed to be like five dates. Or yeah, and it kept on getting extended, extended, extended. And William and I were just on this plane going to Australia for only the second time in my life. And, um, and we were just like, do you know what you're doing? I was like, no, I'm not really <laughs> sure. And the only thing that we decided on was that it might be a good idea that she does Dancing Queen. That's the only thing we knew. Um, I was working with an Australian band. I bought two blokes from 
the UK just to kind of make sure that I had my kind of sidekicks. But yeah, th- those two are really special. So probably the two smallest mm. shows are the ones that I have a lot of love for because they were for different reasons. Absolutely. As, as much as I was a fan of Impossible Princess, I loved the Live and Intimate show. I remember going to see it in Shepherd's Bush. Mm. And I, I, loved, I actually liked the songs that I wasn't as keen on as recorded. I kind mm. of loved hearing them live. So when I yeah. watched the show as a show, it was brilliant to watch. And I, I kind of like came away thinking, oh, maybe it's, I, I enjoyed the songs a lot more. So um, I mean, I, I think they're my favourite tools. If I was pushed on favourite show, um, I'm obviously going to pick Kylie Christmas at the Albert Hall. Because, oh, yeah. And that one too. <laughs> Wait, you know, because that wasn't a tour, so I didn't want to ask that. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, that was another show where you could really feel the love. I mean, with all Kylie shows that you can feel the love, you really go on an emotional journey when you go to a Kylie show. There's a lot yeah. of... You know, there is a lot of love and, and it's brilliant. Um, what can we expect from the new album? Are you working on the new album with her? Or was it Top Secret? I have absolutely no information. I, I know nothing. Okay. Because <laughs> I would, if, if it's possible, I'm throwing it out there to the universe. There needs to be a duet with Olivia Newton-John. I'm just putting it out there for the oh, universe. Oh, really? Yeah, that's, that's what I'd like to put, throw it out I, there. I love, I love Olivia. We did a, I was so fortunate that... Um, I did a long time ago, I did a remix of Xanadu. Yes, I was listening to it. We're familiar with it. <laughs> but when Olivia did Mardi Gras, yeah. she used that version. Oh. And it was, oh my God, I was one of the proudest moments of my life. I've, I've, been, I've been, been involved in about five Mardi Gras, and one of them was Olivia, and I wasn't even there, but I just <laughs> had this thing that someone said, Is there a track for it? Oh, wow. Like, You're kidding. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm well, a huge I'm... fan of Olivia. I've always wanted Kylie to do Xanadu as a song. I, I think Danny did a kind of a strange kind of band. Dan did like a, a, a kind of cool chat version, actually. Danny. Yeah. I, 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 see, I like the old fashioned, you know, the, the old chords because she kind of veered away from the original kind of uh, yeah, song. Yeah, yeah. But I would love Kylie. I mean, if Kylie was to do, if this new album was a disco one, I want, it to, I want there to be an EP for the very four covers. Xanadu, Together in Electric Dreams. I don't know. This, these are my oh, dreams. God, wow. You've really thought about this, haven't you? Dreams of an Impossible Princess over here. <laughs> 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 and also Steve what like I was just thinking we were, we were talking Chris and I were talking about it because some songs on the album seem a little bit different to Kylie throughout her journey do you think she would benefit in a way by having just one producer produce one album as a consistent piece or do you no think I don't think it? so I, I think it's I, th- I think that it depends on what album you're talking about but I think if you're talking about it I think in general there's, there, there's different people bring different things Mm. You know, I mean, I think sometimes it was good. I thought Aphrodite was good in that Stuart had a exec of it. Yeah. Um, but she's the exec. Do you know what I mean? It's like she's overseeing everything. You know, if you look at, especially if you look at Golden, I mean, that's, you know, that is totally, it's all her. It's like she's, she's all over it. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, an album with one of my favourite Kylie songs of all time on it, which is Lost Without You. Um, which almost didn't even nearly didn't make the album but she fought for it apparently right so good I mean if you, I don't know if you came to the golden tour but that lost a couple of times moment so. in that yeah. Oh God. yeah so no I don't think so I think it's you know she's the constant I don't think it, it doesn't matter how many people are involved she's the kind of she's overseeing the, the all-seeing eye basically now you've listened to the show. Now we have these: which songs are Kylie Smiley's and which are the Minonos? Yeah. Um, out of her whole entire career, if you could choose three songs for the Kylie Smiley's, which one would you choose? Well, I, so "Lost Without You." Yeah. 
for sure. I remember when I heard the demo of that and I just, oh my God, I just overwhelmed. <laughs> um, if anyone ever asks me my favorite song, I'll always say the same thing, which is I'll still be loving you. Ooh. Which, oh, <laughs> oh my God, I do. I mean, I, we snuck a bit in on Golden at the end of Wouldn't Change a Thing, mm-hmm. just because, oh my, what a song. <laughs> And, um, oh gosh, that's really hard. I'll, I'll, I'll put one of mine in just because of the, the joy of doing it, which, and I, I would say a hundred degrees. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's so many amazing memories and, you know, to have the privilege of, of working with, you know, with both girls. I've had it, I've done it twice now and it's. Did you see what it takes at all as well? Sorry? Yeah, I did. Yeah, really, think, yeah, that's a, that's a great yeah. version of it. See, that's did a, Brendan um, not want to come on and do the tambourine? You could have had the whole Minogue family in there. Well, you know, he's quite shy, but I mean, <laughs> he might be on there. You never know. We just didn't put a camera in his face. Very yeah. talented family. And which would you choose as your Mononos if there was three tracks where, that you'd choose for a Monono? I don't, I, don't, I don't go negative. No. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. Oh. I think everybody's got their, their own things. Yeah. Um, so I think that, I think there's something in in everything. I mean, <laughs> no, I'm not. I won't say anything because the thing is, the moment I say something, everyone will go, "Oh, that's why it's not been on tour." As if it's got anything to, <laughs> as if it's got anything to do with me whatsoever. I just <laughs> go where I'm pointed. Do you know what I mean? So, no. Oh well, Steve, thank you so much. We really appreciate this. You've been an absolute gem. This has been a, a treasure. Oh, no talk worries. To. And, and listen, keep up the good work. I'm really really enjoying the ones that I heard, and I love the detail. I love the passion behind it and um i think being a fan of someone like hers is 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 a really magical thing and i love that you've got i think on one of them there was three of you and you all had very different opinions Mm. and that to me is what makes great artists so the fact you're spending the time to celebrate it is 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 really good so Mm. i wish you luck with the rest of it well thank you so much no worries take care guys see you very much